Did you know that you're living in the new Wild West? Well, today I'll tell you all about this new age of outlaws and justice. In some national news, I'm going to tell you why you should cancel your subscription to Christianity Today or just never click on another one of their articles. Spoiler alert, it has something to do with Barbie and Taylor Swift. Plus, on a serious note, which demographic in the United States would you say is the most suicidal and why? I think you'll be surprised. Locally, we'll talk about how hot it is in Tennessee and we'll find out if that has anything to do with climate change. I'm Blake Watson and this is We The Free. It's October 5th, 1892. A group of outlaws known as the Dalton Gang had set their sights on pulling off a robbery the likes of which no one had ever accomplished or seen. Two banks at one time. The banks were across the street from one another in Coffeyville, Kansas, and to make it even riskier, they would seek to do so in broad daylight in the middle of town. Bob Dalton had planned the whole thing but his brother Emmett, he didn't think it would work. They had successfully pulled off a string of train robberies, cattle thefts, and more, but to Emmett, this was just, it was too much. Two banks at the same time in broad daylight? Well, regardless, the plan proceeded. Bob and Emmett Dalton would hit the, the first national bank, while Grat Dalton, with two others, would rob the bank across the street. When they arrived, they tied up their horses with guns in hand, and made their way into the separate banks. But not without plenty of townsfolk noticing. While the Dalton gang carried out their separate robberies, the people of Coffeyville began to amass in the town square. Local hardware stores even started distributing guns to the locals and, and law enforcement readied themselves. And in the end, when the Daltons tried to escape, Grat Dalton, Bob Dalton, Dick Broadwell, and Bill Powers were shot to death by the people of Coffeyville, Kansas. Emmett Dalton somehow survived the ordeal, despite having received 23 gunshot wounds, but these gang members got caught trying to rip off the people, and the people in the local law enforcement put a complete stop to their crime. And this was also in the same day and age when public executions were still prevalent in the form of public hangings. If someone committed a crime worthy of death or capital punishment, they would be hanged to death in front of a crowd of locals. But that was 1892, and this is 2023. Crime rates are on a steep incline, although the United States are seeing lower amounts of crime since a peak in the 90s, crime rates and murder rates and homicide rates have been rising since 2018. The government's poor leadership and authoritarianism, including some of your workplaces, uh, mandates, forced lockdowns, vaccine mandates, and forced maskings literally drove people insane. Not to mention, in that same year, racial tensions, stoked by mass media and liberal politics, reached a fever pitch. So crime rates rose by almost 30% in 2020 alone. But that's just one year in a multi-year rise in crime. One key factor in all of this is the anti-police rhetoric, but we'll come back to that in a moment. In recent years, you've probably seen the shocking footage of stores being robbed by gangs of people. You've seen, or at least you've heard about, shocking racial violence where like white kids, the, the elderly, Hasidic Jews, or Asians are being targeted because of their race and their ethnicity or their skin color. In most of these situations, no one is doing anything to stop them. And the reason why you're seeing it is because someone's standing there just taking a video of it on their iPhone because they think, oh, this will get lots of views and likes online, right? Of course, there's one recent exemption from this new normal, and that is the infamous Daniel Penny. The former Marine was riding a train in New York City when a homeless man who's been described as mentally ill, etc., began screaming at and threatening passengers. Penny said he knew he had to do something. 
Here is Daniel Penny describing what happened. Well, I live in the East Village in Manhattan, so I take the subway multiple times a day. At 2nd Avenue, uh, a man came on, stumbled on, he was, appeared to be on drugs. Um, the doors closed and he ripped his jacket off and, violent, and threw it at the people sitting down to my left. The three main threats that he repeated over and over was, I'm gonna kill you, I'm prepared to go to jail for life, and I'm willing to die. You know, this, is a, this was a scary situation and uh, Mr. Nearly came on, he was, he was threatening, he's, he's a, I'm 6'2 and he was taller than me. I was scared for myself, but I looked around, I saw women and children, he was yelling in their faces, saying, saying these threats. I couldn't just sit still, trying to restrain him from him being able to carry out the threats. And then some people say that this was about race, which is absolutely ridiculous. I didn't see a black man threatening passengers. I saw a man threatening passengers, it's a lot of whom were people of color. The man who helped restrain Mr. Neely was, was a person of color. I knew I had to act, and I acted in a way that would protect the other passengers, protect myself. I didn't want to be put in that situation, but I couldn't just sit still and let, let him carry out these threats. So Penny says the three main threats he repeated were, I'm going to kill you, I'm prepared to go to jail for life, and I'm prepared to die. So Penny, being the former military member he is, being the person who's trained to combat and defend for others, he steps in and he stepped up to prevent harm from these other passengers on the subway, which he described as women and children of all colors. So what happened to this guy? Was this hero given a ticker tape parade? Did New York give him the key to the city for his heroism? Well, in a society that's devoid of justness and justice, where crime is rising and police are being attacked, where race baiting and racism drips like drool from the mouths of politicians and media members, no. Daniel Penny is being sent to prison for at least 15 years for manslaughter and negligent homicide and some went to send him to prison for life. It seems like quite the paradox, doesn't it? A man who served his country saves a subway car full of passengers from a man who had been arrested 42 times, including once for punching a 67-year-old woman in the head. Sure, the story demonstrates the imbalance of justice, or as some call it, the two-tiered system of justice. And on another level, I'm not saying that uh, former President Trump is a hero, but the man is being punished for anything he's ever committed, while his opponents, guilty of the very same things, skip down the halls of Congress or the White House or the halls of justice like it's another day at the park. It reminds me of the words of uh, King Solomon in Ecclesiastes when he said, I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. When Solomon says that phrase, under the sun, that means on earth. So he's saying that life on earth isn't fair. That, that's just, that's a natural injustice, like on this broken, fallen planet that for the meantime, we, we call home. And sure, there's ebbs and flows throughout history, but right now, what's up is down, what's good is bad, and what's bad is good. The good guy gets punished, while the bad guy doesn't. In the case with our political leaders, only the bad guy gets punished, but the really bad guys don't. I can prescribe several remedies to fix the imbalance of the scales of justice, one way would be to reinstitute the blindness of Lady Justice. In the case of Daniel Penny, he's being punished because of his skin color and because of Jordan Neely's skin color. In Trump's case, it's because he's somewhat conservative and an untraditional Republican. But what about across the nation? How do we balance the scales of justice there? Well, the biblical prescription for law and order is pretty simple. Punish evil. Reward good, establish law and order. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, every single person. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword, meaning the, the rulers. It, it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So he says, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In the Old Testament, we have so many examples of law and order when it comes to crime and punishment, the most serious offenses being those deserving of capital punishment, which in that day consisted of public stonings, where people threw rocks at you until you're dead. In Genesis 9-6, God says to Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. In Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, Moses is giving several commands concerning, he's given several commands concerning capital punishment for murder, which is the intentional taking of innocent life, uh, striking or cursing a parent, kidnapping, adultery, incest, bestiality, sodomy, rape, witchcraft, breaking the Sabbath, blasphemy, sacrificing to idols, and, and more. Now, there are all sorts of rules associated with this punishment, but when you fast forward to the foundation of the United States and the formation of our justice system, these were the biblical building blocks from which we also derived proportionality, that the punishment should match the crime, certainty of guilt, like there had to be proof, there also had to be proof of intent, due process, and even reluctance to execute. In Ezekiel 33.11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Remember this, turn from his way and live. He says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. That's what God wants more than anything. And so what's the point of all this? Justice, justice. God wants justness. And he gave Israel the prescription for a just society. What is the point of punishing evil? What is the point of God's system of justice? Why did he give Israel rules for capital punishment when he didn't find pleasure in the death of the wicked? Well, think about it. Why did we used to hang people in public in the middle of the day, in the middle of town for all to see? Because when the townspeople saw someone facing the, the penalties for their actions, it made everyone else think twice about committing these same acts. I'm sure the Israelites felt the same way, and I'm sure that's why hardly no one feels that way now. Why do we have rising crime rates, murder, homicide rates? Because no one is punishing evil and rewarding good or enforcing law and order. And as long as that is the case, as long as prosecutors commit to letting criminals off the hook, as long as police are decimated by defunding or poor training or humiliation and, and DEI initiatives, as long as parents are lax or absent altogether, crime will continue to skyrocket to previous levels. And then people like Daniel Penny and the townsfolk of Coffeyville, Kansas, will continue to do the job that others will not do. It reminds me of New York City in the late 80s and the early 90s. Crime was unbelievable in New York City at that time. But Rudy Giuliani was elected as mayor of New York City in 1994 with a promise to clean the place up, to put an end to the crime-riddled city. Now, what do you think he did to accomplish that? He unleashed the police department on the city to punish any offenses from graffiti or jumping a turnstile all the way up to drugs and murder. And what happened? Crime absolutely plummeted. In the first four years, murder rates dropped by almost 70%. Rape, and robbery, and assault all dropped. 
shootings dropped by almost 70%, and all of this in every single borough. Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. It is amazing what happens when you enforce the law and punish crime. Society becomes a safer, better place to live. Now, where there's humanity, there's bound to be sin and evil. So God says, here are the rules and processes to keep this as just and orderly as possible. Punish evil. Reward good. Establish law and order. That's what we used to have in America, but those days are gone, as we've, especially as, as we've departed just more and more from the one who is the father of justice. If you take a trip to Coffeyville, Kansas today, you can literally see the exact spot where the Dalton gang members lay dead. <laughs> An outline of their bodies is, is painted onto the street, complete with museums and guided tours, etc. And why? why? Why celebrate that and remember that over a hundred years later now? Because it was the triumph of good over evil. The people of Coffeyville armed to the teeth, literally put evil to death. If America could take a lesson from its past and its ancestral spiritual inspirations to punish evil, reward good, and establish law and order in a system of blind justice, we'd have cause to celebrate too. Now, let's get to the news feed. The majority of you are coffee drinkers, and maybe some of you fancy yourselves coffee connoisseurs. Well, whether you're someone who likes to down a quick cup to get a caffeine dose, or you enjoy the art of crafting an excellent cup of coffee, you've got to give my friends at Blackout Coffee a shot. They've got bags of ground or whole bean coffee or single serve pods. They've got many different blends, flavors, and roasts. My personal favorite is Morning Reaper. It's one of their medium roasts. So use my code BLAKE23 for 20% off. That's B-L-A-K-E-2-3 for a discount and level up your morning cup with blackout coffee. If you're a subscriber to the Christian magazine, Christianity Today, or their online magazine or blog site, whatever you want to call it, hopefully you'll seriously consider dropping your subscription and never clicking on another one of their articles when you're scrolling on Facebook. Why do I say that? Why so harsh? Well, the company is increasingly liberal, not only in their political expression, but even in their theology. And those things typically go hand in hand. But in recent articles, they have defended or promoted uh, Ilhan Omar, the most anti-Semitic representative we have. Their latest cover story talks about uh, Christians declaring their preferred pronouns. They have a recent article on the evil actions of Trump in Fulton County. On the same note, the writers at Christianity Today are just perplexed as to why evangelicals continue to support Trump despite the indictments. And there have been numerous indicative articles for the last few years on these same notes. For example, they recently wrote an article bashing the recently viral backwoods sensation Oliver Anthony and his song, Richmond North of Richmond. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for both pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a shame what the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. It's taxed 
I love how he's just in the woods in front of a tree stand surrounded by his dogs. But that was the first minute of Rich Men North of Richmond. The song largely covers the plight of blue-collar workers all over the United States. But most of the lyrics resonated with many of us. That's why the song has remained at the top of the charts and country charts for weeks. He sings about working so hard but barely making it. He sings about politicians, the, the rich men in Washington, D.C., uh, doing anything for power and control. He describes the invasive nature of the government into our lives. So what's, what's the big problem? What, what's wrong with this? How could Christianity today write a negative review of this piece of genuine folk Americana music? Hannah Anderson writes the article which she titled, Oliver Anthony's viral hit, doesn't love its neighbors. How is it that she's coming to that conclusion? Well, it's because of the most viral lyrics from the song where Anthony sings the following. Which politicians look out for miners and not just miners on an island somewhere. Lord, we got folks in the street ain't got nothing to eat and the whole beast milk and welfare. Is keep on kicking them down. I wish politicians would look out for miners like coal miners and not just miners like children on an island somewhere. <laughs> I, I remember when I heard that line the first time, my jaw hit the floor, but it, it got even better. Pay really close attention to this next line. Anthony sings, Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat, and the obese milking welfare. Here he's describing how we've got poor people literally struggling to survive, so much so they're living on the street, begging for food, but juxtapose that with people he calls the obese milking welfare. He's talking about people who take advantage of the welfare system, not people who are in the welfare system, people who take advantage of it. He continues to sing uh, this line next. He says, If you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. <laughs> Again, this is describing someone who is gorging themselves on the public dollar. Now, that's something that most people have a problem with. It's, it's one thing to have little income despite working so hard to provide for you and yours, but to be morbidly obese and on the welfare system. Anthony expresses the disdain that Americans have for funding your obesity and lazy decisions. But of course, as liberals do, Hannah Anderson inevitably, inevitably makes the article about herself and claims that Anthony's song is unloving to people in the welfare system like herself she says, despite the number of people accessing SNAP, which is a welfare program, their experiences are not widely known among the general public, or at least the experience isn't often openly discussed. That's partly due to the negative stereotypes that accompany food insecurity and social programs more generally, like Anthony's disdainful words about those who use welfare in a song that otherwise champions the downtrodden. Later in the article, she would describe an embarrassing situation at the grocery store checkout line where she didn't want a friend to see her paying with food stamps. Somehow, though, she's missed the entire point of the song. Anthony is describing politicians in Washington, D.C. wanting and working for full control and power over as many lives as possible and the disdain that the majority of Americans feel towards that. Most Americans feel robbed by the government every single year, all the time. Just try not paying your taxes and see what happens. But we do it anyways. And then the government uses our money to do all sorts, all sorts of things that we don't like, which includes throwing money at people who obviously don't need it. Anderson thinks Anthony is singing against her, but he's actually singing for her. Americans are 
pretty much a, a generous people who would gladly help and be benevolent towards people like Anderson who are doing their darndest to provide for them and theirs. But due to their circumstance or location, they, they still struggle financially. I can talk about this stuff all day, but that's not the point of this segment. Christianity Today ran this story bashing a song which is anti-elitist, pro-blue-collar, and pro-American, which resonated with millions of us, obviously. Now, I'm not saying Anthony is some great Christian. The song definitely isn't. I mean, not to mention his, his use of expletives. But the day prior, the day prior, the day before this story came out, Christianity Today wrote this article. The headline was, Barbie and Taylor Swift are bringing us together. The lead line says, Beyond hot pink and bejeweled outfits, they showcase a deeper desire for community and collective joy. The woman writing the article, Beth Felker Jones, begins the article with this. The epic trifecta of Greta Gerwig's Barbie, Beyonce's Renaissance Tour, and Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, all raking in millions of dollars, are taking over social media having grown adult women reliving their youth in a tween girl summer. This is supposedly a Christian magazine, by the way. So Jones attempts to connect this to Christian fellowship somehow. Anyways, the article goes on to slobber all over the Barbie movie, Taylor Swift, and Beyonce Knowles. What's the problem with this? Taylor Swift and Beyonce... Both use profanity, just like Oliver Anthony did in his music. Beyonce regularly flaunts her body in partial nudity, and Swift isn't far off from that. In one of Taylor's recent music videos, she cast a transgender man, also known as a woman, to play her man in the video, whom she's depicted in bed with, while the trans man, aka the woman in the video, is topless. So Taylor's wokeness isn't anything new though. Uh, in an Instagram post in 2018, this is what Taylor said right before election day. In the past, I've been reluctant to publicly voice my political opinions, but due to several events in my life and in the world in the past two years, I feel very differently about that now. I always have and always will cast my vote based on which candidate will protect and fight for human rights, the human rights I believe we all deserve in this country. I believe in the fight for LGBTQ rights and that any form of discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender is wrong. I believe that the systemic racism we still see in this country towards people of color is terrifying, sickening, and prevalent. I cannot vote for someone who will not be willing to fight for dignity for all Americans, no matter their skin color, gender, or who they love. Running for Senate in the state of Tennessee is a woman named Marsha Blackburn. As much as I have in the past and would like to continue voting for women in office, I cannot support Marsha Blackburn. Her voting record in Congress appalls and terrifies me. You can tell from this now five years old post that Taylor is an advocate for transgenderism, which, if you haven't been paying attention, has gone so far as to be taught in elementary school classrooms. Uh, in some places, parents' authority in the lives of their kids is usurped if the kid identifies as the opposite sex and wants to chemically or physically alter their bodies to comport to their mental illness. Um, she's an advocate for homosexuality. She's clearly a feminist, which is closely related to racial equity or the demand for equal outcomes, not equal opportunities, uh, diversity simply for the sake of genitalia or skin color, not for ability or capability. And it, all this may be worse at this point. This goes without mentioning, though, her endless lyrics, which are, I mean, basically just the subtle airings out of, of dirty relationship laundry. It's drama, and it's what most people, especially teenagers, thrive on. Taylor's music is like the, the pop equivalent to tabloid magazines. Beyonce, though, uh, isn't much better She's a self-identified feminist, again, the, the equity kind, with numerous songs and lyrics to reflect that allegiance. Much of her lyrics are extremely sexual, with your typical 
hip-hop references to drugs and alcohol. I mean, for Pete's sake, one of her more popular songs is called Bootylicious. Of course, being a very popular, partially African-American woman, she has furthered the idea of systemic racism and black oppression. I mean, for example, in her performance at the 2016 Super Bowl halftime show, she, she wore a Black Panther outfit. And no, I'm not talking about the Marvel movie. This is what Christianity today promotes, and this is what they profane. Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and Barbie? Good. Oliver Anthony's Blue Collar Anthem? Bad. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't dance to Shake It Off or Crazy in Love at the next wedding reception you're attending, or that you shouldn't see Barbie or play with Barbie dolls, but I'll make you a deal. If you all will stop reading and clicking on Christianity Today articles, I will be sure to share with you what you need to know in the Christian sphere, okay? Okay. So, here's something pretty serious you need to know about. Um, Psychology Today reported on the silent crisis of male suicide. In the article, they say that in the Americas, men account for around 75% of completed suicides. In the United States, around 35,000 men die by suicide each year, which means uh, around one every 15 minutes, every 15 minutes. Um, A CDC report states that male suicide increased by around 2% per, per year from uh, from 2006 to 2017, reflecting a 26% increase in male suicides since 1999. The report goes on to criticize the current approaches to male suicide prevention and men's health, uh, men's mental health. They suggest a renewed approach to addressing these things, like focusing on the social context of men's lives, uh, examining the relationship between various social factors, and suicide. Their study revealed that certain subgroups of men are at particular risk of suicide. Divorced men, military veterans, unemployed men, Native American men, and men with mental illness. The author says, to a greater or lesser extent, men in these groups often experience high levels of isolation, financial strain, social stigma, stereotyping, and suspicion from wider society. As they were speaking to the social alienation these men experienced, they said, the social integration of adult men in Western countries is typically provided by meaningful participation in a nuclear family and the workforce. The CDC reported Adults aged 35 to 64 years account for 46.8% of all suicides in the United States. That's almost half. So that's your largest group, and it fits right into those categories described in the Psychology Today report. People that are 35 to 64 years old, divorcing, becoming military veterans, losing their jobs, etc. The CDC also reported among men in this age group, suicide rates were highest for non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaska Native men, 41.3 suicides per 100,000. And this is followed by, in second place, non-Hispanic white men, 35.7 per 100,000. So the numbers they're reporting there are proportional numbers. Native American or Alaska Native men are proportionally the most suicidal group, but they only comprise about 1% of the U.S. population. White men make up almost half of the U.S. population. So proportions aside, that's roughly 45 to 1 white male suicides to American Indian or Alaskan Native male suicides. Now, as a Christian, all suicide is terrible. It's horrific. It is The taking of a life, it's a wrongful taking of a life, just as abortion is, and all those suicide rates are rising generally, I simply want to ask why suicides are increasing most for white men. Let's look at 
Psychology Today's suggested focal points to prevent male suicide. They talked a lot about isolation. There are obviously many factors causing men to be lonely and isolated. So let's just consider some of them. We're living in a culture that is progressively online. People don't have personal interaction in the presence of real people anymore. They're only digital interactions. They're superficial, they're fake and contrived. Uh, your list of friends in actuality is only a list of acquaintances. This online evolution, and throw on top of that, an international virus drove even the workplace online and at home. So you're not even really working with people. It's, it's like living life through a window. And speaking of the internet, the most recent data tells us 87% of men between 18 and 35 report to watching porn on a weekly basis. 87%. Almost 33,000 are consuming pornography every second. So like right now, 33,000. 93% of boys, so almost all boys, are exposed to porn in some form before they turn 18. Almost all of them. As a result, studies have shown, pornography hijacks the pleasure center of your brain. It floods your neural network with dopamine, which is to say, the more you watch pornography, the harder it is for you to find happiness outside of pornography. Pornography can create, agitate, and trap you in depression and anxiety. And this has surely played a massive role in divorce statistics. Uh, even before marriage, though, this, this online addiction and pornography pandemic, and not to mention hookup culture, which is where people are progressively dating just for sex and fun, all of this has led to increased loneliness and isolation, especially when you ice the proverbial cake with the demonization of marriage, monogamy, and fidelity. Now, who would you say has been the most hated group in society in the last decade? White men. And, and, and even worse are white Christian men. They've been demonized and, and hated more than anyone else. I mean, they think about it. They, they represent the patriarchy. They're the literal faces of white supremacy and the ancestral offspring of our racist founders and slave drivers and plantation owners. Now that's seven reasons right there for white male isolation, but I saved the best for last. The eighth thing is that these men are not being discipled. Most of them haven't even been evangelized. And why is that? Why is that? Because the bride of Christ has not been the salt and light it was intended to be. I mean, think about it, church. Think about it, brothers and sisters in Christ. If we were reaching people and discipling them, you know, like Jesus commanded us to in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, he said, go therefore and make disciples, not just converts, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Watch this teaching them to observe, teaching them all that I commanded you. That's discipleship. If we were doing a better job of this generations ago, plural, there would be significantly less numbers and percentages in each of these statistical categories. Less divorce, less suicide, less addiction, better marriages, better survival, and better relationships. People would be uh, better able to, to handle a, a tragedy or a loss or something difficult or challenging. Mental illness would be drastically decreased. Men would be mentally and spiritually and emotionally stronger. And in fact, everything would be better. So let's see the church step up to address these crises. Now, Last week, I mentioned we would talk about President Trump's fourth indictment in Fulton County, Georgia, very soon. We will do this next week, amongst other things, because last night was the first Republican debate, which Trump boycotted 
for an interview with Tucker Carlson. We'll break down both of these events in next week's episode, but I want you to let, uh, let me know some things in the comments, okay? So please comment your answers. Did you watch the debate? Why or why not? Did you watch Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson? Why or why not? Did you think it was a good strategic move for Trump to skip the debate? And who do you think performed best last night? Was it Doug Burgum, Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, or Tim Scott? Or was it Trump over by himself? More importantly, though, Trump says he'll be arrested today. So we'll save all this Trump news for next week. Also, I think for the monologue next week, I'm going to explain this often cited phrase, separation of church and state. It is very interesting and informative and important for our proper understanding. Now, let's get to some local newsfeed. You probably need some roof repairs. If you feel that water dripping every time it rains or those shingles are starting to look sort of bad, trust me, the sooner you act, the better. So you need to call my friends over at Turner Exteriors for an estimate on your roof today. If you tell them Blake sent you, they'll give you $500 off your new roof. Now, I know the guys and gals over at Turner Exteriors, they do great work. You will love the new life they bring to your home. Most of the journalism you see in regard to climate change is an uneducated mess of super theorizing and scrambled scholarship salad. Uh, in other words, uh, most of it makes no logical sense. So in a recent Knox News article, Deverick Turner asked, are summers getting hotter in Knoxville the way they are in other places? Well, I don't know, Deverick. Let's, let's find out. So we're going to read this. He begins the article by saying, Perhaps you've noticed that this summer has been kind of hot. Okay, very hot. Well, we're off to a rocky start. Because I, I don't know about you or, or where, where you come from, but uh, summers are, are generally hot. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what happens in the summer is that in June, in July, in August, it gets pretty hot. Um, in fact, as, as I was reading this, I was trying to think back through my life. I've only been on the earth for, for three decades, but I, I just remember every single summer being hot. I don't, I don't ever remember it being cold or having to wear a jacket or seeing snow somewhere in the summer. So summer is generally pretty hot. So, okay, let, let's keep going. He says Knoxville routinely is a little cooler than the record high temperatures other parts of the state and country have seen. But get this, our days of sizzling summer heat are not over. Well, yeah, it's because summer's not over. Like, we, we still have probably just a little bit longer with this higher temperatures. But he asks, is this our new normal? What does that mean? Do you mean, like, it's just going to be hot all year long or summer's going to be hot? Because that is normal. Anyways, he says another heat wave is forecast to sweep over Knoxville and the Tennessee Valley this week, bringing above normal highs. Okay, above normal highs. All right. Temperatures are expected to be in the mid-90s and peak at 96 late in the week. Oh, I thought you said it was going to be above normal highs. Because, uh, again, my entire life, it gets to the mid-90s and up to 96 every single summer. So... How is that above normal highs? Anyways, he says, Heat waves across the country this summer have resulted in temperatures soaring well over 110 degrees in some states. More than 110 million Americans were under some sort of heat alert at one point in July, USA Today reported. Okay, again, 
it's summer. It's July. It, it, it is hot all over the place. So that explains why there's so many millions of Americans under a heat advisory. Because it's summer, for crying out loud. But the first part where he says that some areas, uh, the temperature is, has gotten over 110 degrees, again, that is something that isn't abnormal, especially when you go to like the Southwest, for example. Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, it gets pretty dang hot there. So if we were talking about Knoxville getting to 110 degrees, then we'd have something serious to talk about. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, the next two paragraphs uh, are where this gets crazy. He says, Earth even had its hottest day on record. Earth did. So <laughs> we're not just talking about Knoxville or East Tennessee here. We're talking about the Earth. And he says, Earth even had its hottest day on record when the global average temperature reached 63 degrees in July, okay? That was the global average, 63 degrees, surpassing the previous record, get this, you ready? 62.9 degrees. Oh my goodness, it's so hot on the earth that we have broken records. The record was broken by a whole tenth of a degree. <laughs> uh, and... and in the next paragraph, he says, unlike some harder-hit regions, the Knoxville area, here we go again, had a peak of 94 degrees in July. That was the peak in July. Uh, again, I can think back through my whole life, and, and this is what summer is. This is It gets to 94 degrees every single summer. And it, but this is the part that I really can't stand. He says, but if you thought it felt hotter than that, you'd be correct. Heat indexes, or the feels-like temperature when humidity is factored in, have reached the high 90s and low 100s locally multiple times this summer, according to the National Weather Service. Uh, some areas of the Tennessee Valley even experience heat indexes reaching over 105 degrees. To this, I, this is not science at all. Like, why are we talking about and why do we have a measurement of what people feel like the temperature is? All that matters is what the actual temperature is. You look on the thermometer, if it says it's 90 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever degrees Celsius, that is the temperature. If, if you walk outside, and you look at the, the thermometer and it says 90 degrees, but you go, ah, it kind of feels like 95 degrees to me. That's irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you feel like. What matters is what the temperature actually is here. That's what most of this article is about. So right in the middle of this, they're trying to make their case by talking about heat index, but it literally does not matter. Now things get even crazier in this next paragraph, and this is something that you've heard many times, but... It says, scientists say the planet is the hottest it has been in roughly 125,000 years. Can you believe that? The earth is the hottest that it's been in 125,000 years. Now, as Christians, we completely disagree with this dating that the earth is that old, okay? We believe in a young earth that has the the appearance of antiquity like we believe the earth is only around 6000 years old but it can look like it's millions of years old because that's how god made it everything just began as that but to say that the planet is the hottest it's, it's been in that long okay let's set our christian uh beliefs aside for just a second and just think okay let Let's just say that the earth is that old. How in the world are you able to know what the temperature was that long ago? I'm serious. Do people not question these scientists? Like, how, how do you know that the temperature was that high that long ago? Seriously. But anyways, what does that mean for Knoxville specifically? How hot does it typically typically get here, and should we expect our summer fun to be 
melted by unbearable heat for years to come. Now, this is the part that really gets me in this article. It makes no sense why these points are in, in the middle of this article because it literally wrecks this whole argument. The argument is that the temperatures that the earth has been experiencing this year in, in different countries and different places all over the world, it's being blamed on man-made climate change as if we are to blame for the fact that it's hot in the summer. Okay? That's the idea. That's what the activists are saying. Some of them even going so far as to, to blame Trump voters specifically. Because, you know, we, we like to use sources of energy that come from fossil fuels. That, that, so they, oh, that's it. That's the reason why it's been so hot lately. But that's what this article is, is attempting to, to further, but it's ruined right here by itself. Okay, listen to these three points. This is where we're going to stop today. But the first point says temperatures at or above 90 degrees during the summer months, so June through August, are normal in Knoxville. They're normal. If they're normal, why are you even writing this? The second point says from 1991 to 2020, the average number of summer days in Knoxville with a temperature of 90 degrees or greater was 34. So just to reiterate here, from 1991 to 2020, all that time, the average number each year of days that go above 90 degrees is 34. This year, this summer, between June 1st and August 20th, we've only had 10 days, 10 days that got above 90 degrees. Um, I don't know about you, but logically, it seems like the summer's getting cooler, not hotter, than what the average is. So, what... <laughs> Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what to say now, but this is the last point that we're going to discuss. He says the highest temperature on record in Knoxville, the highest temperature on record in Knoxville is 105 degrees, and it was set on July 1st. No, not of 2023, but of 2012. July 1st, 2012, it got to 105 degrees in Knoxville. That's the hottest that it's ever been in Knoxville. Again, that point undermines this whole argument, and you could even suggest that summer is getting cooler based on that stat right there by itself. But I rest my case for now. Well, that's going to do it for me today. What will it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be. And we'll see you next time on We The Free.